0: Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. It's a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. I hope you enjoyed Hunting, Shooting, Fishing part two. The third and final part of Hunting, Shooting, Fishing is all about hippos. So sit back and enjoy. In 1972, my father and his friend, Bill Francis, decided to go on what back then must have been a very hazardous boat trip down the Zambezi River from the small dusty border town of Chirundu all the way to one of the camps on the far eastern end of the river near Mozambique, a trip of some 75 miles. They decided that a trip such as this would build character, So they invited me along. I was 10 years old. The Rhodesian Bush War was just kicking in and every night insurgents were streaming across the Zambezi River from Zambia to attack farmsteads. The Zambezi had become what was known as the sharp end. Hunting camps and holidaying along the river had been forbidden because of the fighting. And in many ways the entire valley had become a no-man's land. This was no place to be caught out. It was probably not the place for a kid either. What made this little adventure so exciting or foolish was the fact that we chose to do the whole trip in one day in a small, unsheltered, outboard boat through totally uncharted territory, The deep navigable channels in the river were constantly shifting and the police gave us permission in the hope that we might be able to provide a map of the river for future operations. Early one morning before sunrise, we set off under the majestic 382-metre steel-framed Otto Bight Bridge. The wide, fast-flowing river took the small boat downstream past tiny African hamlets, bathing women, kids splashing in the shallows, oblivious to the danger of crocodiles. It was a scene reminiscent of the Thomas Baines landscapes that adorned the walls of the Meekles Hotel in Salisbury. A few miles downstream, the bush on the Rhodesian side became wilder, Teeming with buffalo and elephant, waterbuck and kudu, huge crocs slid off the sandbanks and into the water as we approached. And pods of 20 to 30 hippo wallowed in the shallows. The Green River was difficult to navigate, and submerged sandbanks meant that we had to jump into the water, often up to our waists, to push the boat off. Around mid-morning, we saw a small herd of elephants frolicking in a nearby channel of the main river, spraying themselves with water and mud, the young males sparring with one another. Slowly, we drifted over until we were almost within touching distance, watching silently as the largest land mammals in the world played like children in the water. All of a sudden, there was a hell of a commotion! we had managed to spook a large, angry male hippo that had been grazing the grass on the shoreline. The rule is never get between a hippo and deep water, and that is exactly where we were. I remember the noise as this massive beast crashed through the undergrowth, almost right on top of us. He was clearly wounded and bore scars all over his back, from territorial fights with other males. There was no time to react, and within seconds, the huge bull was onto us, thundering into the water on the attack. His shiny pink mouth, big enough to swallow a kid my size. His teeth, certainly big enough to rip the small boat in half. His murderous, roomy eyes, mad with pain. As luck would have it, the channel we were in was deep, and as the hippo hit the water, only yards from sending a massive tidal wave up and over the tiny boat, almost capsizing us, he immediately sank from view, unable to reach our boat. With lightning speed, upturning beer bottles, fishing tackle and worms, Bill started the engine and managed to make a break for it before the hippo's huge head appeared from the water, a few feet away. For once, our usually useless outboard motor saved the day. It was a close shave, and one we would laugh about later around the campfire. The rest of the journey was not to get any easier. Constantly hitting submerged tree stumps and sandbanks, we were losing the daylight and the camp we were headed to was still many miles downriver. Our situation was beginning to look grim and about to get a whole lot worse. It very soon got dark, and the nights in Africa can be dense. And without a spotlight and no moon, we soon got lost between islands and channels and reed beds. When we hit a particularly troublesome spit of sand, Bill got out to push and in the darkness gashed his leg badly on the prop. We tried to bind his wounds as best we could given the lack of visibility or first aid, but as the hours passed, he began to fade. I had never witnessed a man dying before and Bill was losing so much blood that he was without doubt going to die unless we could get help fast in the pitch black we had no way of telling where the camp was dark shapes would loom up in the night floating islands and reed beds fallen trees and submerged rocks every time we shifted we would slide across the floor in Bill's blood sticky with the strong metallic smell of iron then, away in the distance, on the Rhodesian side, we saw the pinprick of a fire. As we drew nearer, we noticed that the fire was being used as a signal, fanned by silhouettes of people like Cornish wreckers or mooncussers. only this time trying to lure us to safety rather than death. Our host at the camp, the usually indomitable Des Bentley, had understandably grown concerned about our whereabouts and had built the fire to draw us in. Carrying Bill's limp frame from the boat, the hunters saw what a desperate situation he was in and someone managed to drive to the nearest South African police camp. They were on an exercise about 20 miles away, their medic took one look at Bill and ordered a medical chopper to casavack him to safety, saving his life. For me, perhaps the most memorable and fun of all the camps were those spent at B camp upriver from Chirundu. My father and his pal Ben Norton would invite us mob, as he liked to call Duncan, Mandy, me, and his son Larry, down for a week or so driving over interminably rough roads, laden to the hilt with fruit, veg, crates of beer and soft drinks, sleeping gear, fishing tackle, and perched on the top, a servant or two. Bee camp was one of the most beautiful on the river and was always sought after by the hunters and campers for the cool shade cast from the huge riverine trees. For the children, it meant untold adventures from dawn until dusk, followed by hot, steaming baths in a tin tub, scrubbed clean of the dust and the mud, and then into pyjamas to sit around the campfires, listening to John or Bill or Ben or any of their mates telling fabulous hunting stories. During the day when the men went out, we would be taken by boat down river to swim in shallow pools, go fishing for tigerfish or bream, and have delicious picnics under the leafy African mahogany trees, while herds of impala grazed the new grass on the flood The red eroded cliffs along the river were pitted from the nests of hundreds of brightly coloured carmine bee-eaters, their rich crimson and turquoise feathers flashing in the afternoon sun. We woods never really professed to be great fishermen. Indeed, we were rather useless fishermen. Indeed, many a joke was made about our pawling tackle, useless technique and rampant theft from other folks' fishing boxes. When the woods were in the vicinity... Everything needed to be clearly labelled with your name or locked away or tied down, preferably to your ankle. Otherwise, it simply went missing. We were not kleptomaniacs. We simply took advantage of any given situation. To this day, I have no idea why I ended up with that wonderful Mitchell reel in my box nor that fabulous imported float so ideal for catching bream. But somehow my tackle box never needed replenishing. Fishermen are strangely superstitious creatures. You can only have your first beer after you've caught your first fish. You must sit all day in the sun without any sun lotion in case the fish can smell the copper tone. Don't eat oranges. Bream hate the smell, apparently, and never, ever lend anything from your tackle box. Selfish bastards. On one occasion, we went fishing at the rather ominously named Crocodile Pools. The place lived up to its name with sandbanks covered in the sluggish black, basking crocs. The deeper channels dotted, with the comical heads of inquisitive hippos. A goliath heron stood on one leg, gazing into its own reflection, and hundreds of feet above, the black and white dot of a fish eagle soared in the thermals. The men had taken a day off from the hunting and were fishing from a large tree trunk that had fallen into the river during the previous rainy season, It was one of those airless, insanely hot days, and Larry and I kept whinging about the heat and wanting to go swimming. His dad, Ben, wiped his forehead and looked warily across at the reptiles, their mouths open in grotesque postures as they soaked up the sun. The river there was relatively shallow, with a sandy bottom. Jeez, you kids are annoying, he groaned. But okay, if you want to damn well swim, go and swim over there in the sandy bit. And look out for crocs. You should be able to see them against the sandy bottom. Mark my word, Larry, they swim a lot faster than you, my boy. Delighted, we ran splashing into the warm, crystal clear water of crocodile pools oblivious to the now wide-awake crocs and hippos, snorting only 50 yards away. "'And don't do anything stupid!' Ben shouted at us as an afterthought. We had been keeping a wary eye out for the reptiles, which had now silently slipped into the water. But one thing escaped our attention— Not far away on a sandbank, a large black log covered in dead leaves, reeds and branches seemed to have washed up, possibly during the floods. Without warning and to our horror, the entire pile stood up and slowly slid into the water. It was the biggest crock any of us had ever seen and it was only yards from where we had been swimming. Squealing and laughing, we ran tumbling over each other to get out of the water. Boy, it was a close shave, and sadly spelled the end of any swimming that day. I don't recall a time when we weren't drifting around hippos, avoiding crops, getting out of the way of elephants or trying not to be charged by buffalo. It seemed that we didn't have a care in the world. The truth is that we were actually very well educated in bush law and were far more aware of our surroundings than most kids our age. Still, hippos were a nuisance and constantly gave me a headache when fishing. Sometimes it was just down to good old-fashioned luck. When I was a little older, we were on a trip upriver from Churundu. My pal George Moorcroft, his two young daughters, Carrie ann and Tara, his wife Calla, my cousin Kerry Greer, and I took the small outboard upstream to catch some bream. George, I shouted over the roar of the engine. Are you sure we should be going so far? Don't forget this is yellow boat and has a bloody mind of its own. Should man Pete laughed George. I'm a mechanic. The rest of his reply was whipped away by the wind and drifted down. The yellow boat belonged to my father, and the Wood family were notoriously bad with engines. I had very little faith in this outboard, and as if on cue, about ten miles upriver, our engine conked out. Even George's magic wasn't going to help here. This time, we had no fuel. Kerry was a lawyer, and in her unflappable manner, Summarized the situation. Well, you can't blame it on the boat this time. We will just have to drift down river until we get back to Churundu. Kerry spoke with a precise, clipped voice more suitable for a courtroom. It was a sound idea except for one thing we had one small, rather useless oar on a swiftly flowing river with many submerged sandbanks, crocodiles, and of course, massive pods of hippos to navigate around. What could possibly be more simple? It all went well for the first hour, notwithstanding the sandbanks. George kept up spirits by singing shona songs beneath the searing sun occasionally in awe we would watch a herd of elephants crossing the river in a line one trunk holding the tail of the other like a circus act or stop singing to gaze at the massive curled antlers of a kudu antelope on the bank it all seemed so idyllic at times we would drift almost to a stop and at others would get caught midstream and pick up the knots. And therein lay the problem. With no steering mechanism, we were at the mercy of Mother Nature, and soon found ourselves drifting at some considerable speed straight towards a pod of some 80 hippos with calves. The hippos by now were thrashing and leaping in the water, bearing their massive jaws and tusks. Helpless, he careered towards them, closer and closer. Finally, George felt that this was the time to try to explain to the children the imminent danger. And I clearly remember this terrified father telling his two brave daughters, Now listen to me, Kerry ann and Tara, this is important. We are going to hit those hippos full on. The boat won't stand a chance. Now listen to me, the boat won't stand a chance. Some of us might get killed. So when I tell you to jump, I want you to, to swim like hell towards that island over there. Don't worry, I'll be right behind you. Do not look back, just swim. Do you understand? Both girls nodded in unison. Incredibly, when so much danger was at hand, there was little to panic about no histrionics, no crying or screaming, just absolute silence, as all on board realised that this was it. Quietly, we looked to one another for courage and assurance, none of which was forthcoming. Then from the silence, we once again heard Kerry's steady, cool voice. Why don't us adults just jump out and try and pull the boat by swimming? We have nothing to lose. It seemed obvious no one at that moment particularly cared about crocs. Christ, a croc could only take one person. These hippos could kill the lot of us. We need to save the children. This was our primary concern. Judging by the speed of the current, we would reach the hippos in 20 seconds. The noise they were making was terrifying. Looking towards the heaving mass of shiny brown bodies, we took our cue and jumped and hit the river bed. The water was only a few feet deep. Laughing with hysteria and terror, we grabbed the boat and dragged it upriver, against the current and out of harm's way, finally collapsing in a heap of ragged nerves on the nearest island. Once we had gathered our senses, we set off again, this time finding a less dangerous current, and finally drifting into Chirundu, bedraggled, and deliriously happy. Just another day's fishing. Sadly, these wonderful trips to the valley were stopped in the mid-1970s after the war escalated and the valley became a no-go area for non-military. It would be another eight years before we would see our beloved Zambezi Valley again. But by then... It was another country. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.